Today's scripture reading is Matthew 28, 1 through 20. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the, of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were, were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to, into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met, had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm always with you to the very end of the age. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you may want to use as we go through this text this morning as we think about the greatness of the resurrection. But as we uh, go into this text, let's do so with the right kinds of hearts and minds and souls by asking God to bless us, and so that's to do it in prayer. Oh, great Father, we scarcely can get our mind around the incarnation before we're confronted with the resurrection. And there is, there is such profound meaning in these two truths, Father, that we can spend the rest of our, our days trying to plumb the depths of them and never really get too far below the surface as great a truth as they are to us. Our prayer is that the resurrection will continually, each day, all the days of our life, impact us and change us. Our reactions, the way that we respond to events and circumstances around us, where we place our affections, what we place at the core of our hearts, 
So as we, we study, Father, and, and, and think as deeply as we can on the greatness of this event in history, we pray that You will give us eyes and ears. Eyes to see it and ears to hear it, Father. To discern and to discern even more. In order to be blessed. In order, Father, to turn toward You in faith. In profound, trusting faith. Unwavering each and every day. And that You will guide us, Father, into Your presence. We pray this with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. Easter, a great day. It is about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. All four Gospels talk about it. So does the rest of the New Testament. When you travel to Israel uh, at any time in your life, when you travel to Israel, one of the first questions you ask is as you're, you're standing in the middle of northern Galilee, you're standing in Jerusalem or someplace in south Judah, one of the first questions you ask, am I standing in the place where it happened? Is this the place where Jesus literally delivered the Sermon on the Mount? Or am I now in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and close to the pathway in the water that Jesus took when He walked on the water and, and met His disciples? Am I in the place where Satan and Christ met each other? Is it in this wadi, the wadi kilt that's just to the west of the Jordan River? Is this the place where, where Jesus was literally tempted by Satan. And you'll ask the question and your guide or your professor will say something like this. Maybe not. It may not be the exact place, but you're closer now than you've ever been before. And we heard that a lot because we were always asking, you know, what is the, you know, what is the significance of this geography? Then after a moment and you begin to reflect on what it is that's happening in this part, on this part of the earth that you're standing your mind begins to entertain two more questions. There are two more questions that come to mind. The first is, did it really happen? Not just did it happen here, but did it really happen? And the second question is this, what in the world does it mean? What does it mean that this happened? Now, the reason you have to answer that first question is because our culture is so dubious of miracles like the resurrection. We live in a culture where skepticism has gone wild. And even if you do believe, you have come to that place where you do believe that the resurrection is real as one of the greatest, most real, dense events in all of history, even if you believe, you do have to know how to respond to, to, to the doubts. You have to know how to answer the questions of those that struggle with it, th those that have doubts about this event. It is not adequate, it is not helpful to say, you know the reason why I believe in the resurrection is because that's what my Sunday school teacher taught me. Or it's because that's what mom and dad have always believed. Or I've believed it all my life. That doesn't really help. That's not helpful at all, either to self or to your friends. That's why you have to have an answer to the first question. Did it really happen? But if you come to the place where you believe the resurrection, that it is a historical event, that Jesus died on the cross, that He was buried, and that He came back to life, not just back to life, but never to die again, then you have to ask the subsequent question, which is, so what? So what? What in the world does it mean? Well, when you think about it, the resurrection is not a naked fact that you believe with your mind, and your mind only, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it goes no further. It goes no deeper into your soul. That kind of a mathematical fact, it's true, and you live with it every day, but it doesn't change your life. 
It's like, you know, human beings can start in San Antonio and by airplane, they can be in Dallas, Texas in 50 minutes to 60 minutes. That's a fact and we all enjoy that fact and some of us take advantage of it, but it doesn't change our life. But if you believe that the resurrection happened, that it is as true an event as your own birth, and you understand what it means, you will never be the same. That truth will change you. And so that's what I want to do with the time that we have this morning is to answer those two questions and, and to answer them. You know, there's a lot of books that have been written on the, on the resurrection. Some of them are, are fairly simple and, and some of them are incredibly profound. There are some that are okay and there are some that are tremendous. What we want to do is to do what those books have done and try to answer the questions, not maybe from external evidences, but from the internal evidence of the text and then answer the second question, which is, what does it mean? Question number one, did it really happen? Well, again, it's an important question. Many folks around the world, and not just around the world, but even where we live, and even in this community of San Antonio, Texas, there are people around the community that will say, you know, Christ was a good man, and he was a beloved rabbi, and he was a wise and beloved teacher. But after his death, his followers developed a higher and higher and higher view of Jesus until he reached the status of deity, and after a couple of centuries of that, these legends were written down and became the New Testament. And that's how Christianity developed. And that's how Christianity, that's, that's where it came from. Now, you'll find it in, in, in different kinds of variations and forms. Some will say that, you know, Constantine in the 4th century, around the, the beginning of the 300s, he needed Christ to be God in order, you know, to have uh, use of Christianity for propaganda purposes. Now, what, what I've given you, basically, and you've all heard it, is basically a cocktail from Religion 101, the History Channel, and the Da Vinci Code. And all of it is wrong. There are at least four things from the text that stand out, that, that are lifted out of this text and help us to understand the reality of the resurrection. Number one, the New Testament documents were not written down centuries later after all the legends had time to stick to the original event. Let me say that again. The New Testament documents were not written down centuries later after all the legends had time to stick to that original event. In other words, after some centuries had gone by, some decades, some years, some centuries had gone by, Nobody could tell the difference between what had really happened and what was a legend that it was being passed around. The legends were now sticking to the original event and were being added to it. Well, look at this verse, verses 13 through 15 in Matthew 28. You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews. Say the last four word, uh, words with me. To this very day. To this very day. Matthew is writing so soon after the, the resurrection, after this event, that he can talk about this particular event, this story about the disciples came and stole the body away, what they told the, the soldiers to say. He is writing so soon after that event that he can, still, he can say that that story is still in circulation. Now Matthew is writing maybe more or less 30 years or so after the life of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he's writing more quickly than that. He's writing some of his earliest letters within about 15 years of the resurrection. Now, why, why, does, why is that important? Well, think about some of the stories that you read in the Gospel. For instance, in Luke chapter 7, 
Here's Jesus. He's going into a town called Nain. It's a small village. It's not very big at all. And he raises the son of a widow from death in the small town of Nain. And it's a public funeral. It starts in the center of the town. And as Jesus meets them, they have been conducting this, this funeral procession. They've gone from the center of this little village out towards the gate to that place for the, for the burial. And Jesus stops the procession. He raises the boy up from the dead, gives him back to his mother, and, and everybody rejoices. What this means is that everybody, at least most of the people in that village, would have seen that miracle. Would have seen it. And even if people had not been there, they would have heard about it. I mean, you think about things that are happening in your neighborhood. If something bad happens, somebody's house catches on fire or somebody's house is broken into, how fast that travels through the neighborhood. Everybody knows about it. If this did not happen, it's just a false story. It's just a hoax. Jesus didn't really... But you're, you're writing. It didn't really happen. But you're wanting to write about it anyway. You could probably write about the raising of the boy from the dead in the village of Nain about 150 years later. But not just a few years later while all the people in that town are still alive. If you did that, then the people of Nain would probably say something, you know, we've lived here all of our lives and I know everybody in this town and I don't remember that ever happening a couple of years ago. You see, while the people are still alive, they can testify to the fact that this happened or it did not happen. And what Matthew is saying is that the, the story about these guys being given to money to give this story, that's still being circulated to this day. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to say, he's going to write, that Jesus of Nazareth appeared to numerous people after his resurrection. Uh, over 500 of them. And that most of those people are still alive. Now, if, if all of these witnesses are around, you're crazy to try to make something up and try to pass it off. It's fact, if there are lots of witnesses that are going, you know what, that never happened. Or if you read about the resurrection, you can track one of those people down and say, hey, were you there? Did you see the resurrected Jesus? And all of these people could say, I saw him with my own eyes. These accounts were not written hundreds of years later as, as legendary but just a few years later, while these people are still alive and can testify to the fact that it was true. You see, the Gospels are not legendary documents. They're historical documents talking about the truth of what happened in that era of, of history. But then number two, the peculiar witnesses have to be explained. There are odd witnesses that have to be explained. Verse 8, so next two words, church. Say it together. The women. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Believe it or not, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are women. Now what's odd about that is that this was done in a day when female testimony in court was not admissible. This was a paternalistic culture. Women were not allowed even to give testimony in a, in a court trial. Now, what this means is this. The only possible reason to write that women were the first witnesses was because it really happened. It's true. If you were making this up, you would never put women in there because it doesn't help with the credibility. In fact, one of the early church fathers, a fellow by the name of Origen, is in a debate with a guy by the name of Celsus. And Celsus 
is an example of how the critics of Christianity would scoff at the idea of women being witnesses and that being credible to the resurrection of Jesus. So why did the gospel writers put it in there when there was every incentive to drop it? It was because the women were there all along with all of the hundreds of other people who were witnesses to the resurrection. But then number three, first century people were not gullible and unsophisticated in their thinking. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. It's about thinking that people in our age, the IQs are, are, are better, the IQs are higher, and we're smarter than primitive people. IQs haven't changed. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, and, and think about it just for a minute, the they. They saw, the subject of that verb saw, or the people that were looking actually at Jesus. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They saw him, they worshipped him, but some, what's that word, church? Doubted. They have seen him, they have touched him, they have eaten with him, they have talked with him, and yet some of them are doubting. Isn't that interesting? And again, if you're just making this up, would you write your story in such a way that the principal players, the ones that you're basing the story on, that they were doubters and not fully in. That they were not fully in to what was happening. But then again, when you think about it, isn't that the way that real life, not the fairy tales, but isn't that the way real life operates? You know, if you had seen someone who had died and that person appears to you, would you not wonder what you had eaten in order to cause this hallucination? I mean, that doubt, I think, is, is authenticity to the, to the truthfulness of what is being said here. They had as, these people would have had as much issue with miracles as we would. And remember, these are first century Jews who would have had as much problem with the resurrection as anyone. The, 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 you know, the Jewish people were kind of divided over the resurrection. No, there was no homogenous idea about what the resurrection would like, look like. In fact, the Sadducees didn't even believe that there would be a resurrection, that what you had right here and right now, that's what you had from God. And that's why they made their compromises with Rome. They weren't looking for some afterlife. But everybody else, just about, the Essenes and, and, the, uh, and the Pharisees, they all believed in this general resurrection at the end of time. And so they would have doubted. They would have been skeptical. They would have been the last to believe that a human being could be both God and man and in, the art, and in this incarnation could die and then be resurrected. You see, modern people and first century Jews might have different reasons to not believe in the resurrection, but they would both have struggled with it. They were as skeptical as modern people. They were not gullible people. They had minds. And, and think about this. As, as much as they would have been skeptical, skeptical about the resurrection, that was going to happen at the end of time, we're not expecting it right now. As skeptical as they would have been about the resurrection, they somehow got the evidence that they needed in order to blow away whatever doubts or whatever skepticism that they had in order to believe it fully and to embrace it with all of their lives. Which brings us to the final point, and that is of this first section. The first disciples would not have sacrificed their lives on a known hoax. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus comes to them and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Now think about what it is that he's commanding them to do. He's saying, you eleven, mainly uneducated men without means, who have never gone very far from home, I want you to go into this great world and to change it. And, and some of you are going to face persecution. You're all going to be confronted with all kinds of hardships and adversity. And nearly all of you are going to meet with a brutal and a harsh death. But go into the world and make disciples. Go into that world with this message and make disciples. And they said, okay. They said, okay. Why? Because it was Jesus who had been raised from the dead. And if the resurrection was possible, then so was changing the world. And so, there are good reasons for believing the resurrection really happened. For all of these internal reasons that I've given you, plus others, but suffice that to say for now, that the resurrection happened. They really did. The answer to the first question, did it really happen? The answer is yes. But that leads to question two. What does it mean? So what? What does it mean for Jesus to be resurrected? Well, it means some very important things. Think about that last verse, verse 18. All authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to Jesus. What in the world does that mean? How does that work? Two things. Number one, the evil at the cross will be vanquished by the resurrection. The evil at the cross will be vanquished by the resurrection. Last week, as we were thinking about the mocking and the hostility and the, the shame that was heaped up on Jesus and the way that they, they, uh, they, they, they piled insults on top of Him, when we, when we looked at it last week, we saw just how dark the human heart really is. It is a dark place. And when you look at the cross, you see human beings at their worst. You see evil. You see unjust suffering. You see wickedness. You see betrayal. You see rejection. You see all of that Jesus experiencing as He is nailed to the cross. We see from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with the details that they give us, and what we know from the extant manuscripts about what cru crucifixions were like in that day, we see just how awful the cross really was. And yet, in the end, what happened? In the end, what happened to all of that evil? It led to the greatest salvation a human can experience. All that evil, all that sin, all that wickedness, all that rejection, all the humiliation, all that shame ended up accomplishing what? Your salvation and mine. The evil and the death of the cross is swallowed up in the resurrection of Jesus. Now there were people in that day who followed Jesus and witnessed all of His miracles and, and they heard all of His teaching and, and, and they saw how He conducted Himself. And there they are. Witnessing either close up or far away. They're witnessing His death on the cross. And you know what they're saying to themselves? I don't see how God can do anything good with this. It's those disciples on the road to Emmaus struggling with each other as they're going back to Emmaus, Emmaus from Jerusalem. Going, we, thought, we thought so deeply and so profoundly, so honestly, that He was the One. Can't see any good coming out of it. And there are folks today that are looking at something and wondering in their life. They're looking at something in their life that is, that is so profoundly hurtful. 
and so profoundly painful and wondering how anything good can come out of what it is that you're going through. And that's where we remember that all authority has been given to Him. And that all of the evil at the cross will be vanquished by the resurrection, that He will overthrow it. Now friends, hear me, that doesn't mean that it's going to end next week or tomorrow or that it will be different even a year from now. But because of the resurrection, we know that this verse is true, that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. We know that's true because all authority has been given to Him, and we know that all authority has been given to Him because He was resurrected, and we know that He was resurrected because the tomb was empty. And then the last thing we'll look at this morning is this. Number two, our personal ending will be a happy ending. Think about the last verse of Matthew's Gospel. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says that He will be with you until the end and at the end. He will be, he, he will be with you until the end and at the end. And in the end, everything will be righted because He is there, because He was resurrected. You know, one of the things that I'm a sucker for, happy endings. I hate terrible endings. I mean, nobody, everybody likes happy endings, right? I mean, no one wants to go to the movie or read a book where it's nothing but annihilation and that the darkness prevails and nothing good happens at the end of it and that all of the evil and all of the goo sort of prevails over everything. What we want to see is a hero that comes out on top and as sappy as it sounds, we really want everybody to live happily ever after, right? I mean, who really wants to live sadly ever after? Except the art critics and some movie makers who say that that's not the way that life operates. One of the, the movies that just gets hammered all the time is the old Jimmy Stewart movie, uh, a, a Wonderful Life. They say, you know, that was good for that period of time. That was good for that age when everybody kind of thought that way. and It was kind of a Pollyannish time. But that's not the way that life operates now. Nothing good like that happens now. That's not how life operates. When you die, you rot, and that's that. No one is ever going to make it all right. You know, two, of the, two guys that I think in, in, in modern Hollywood that are conflicted with this are the Coen brothers. Sometimes you see a movie that those cats have put together, and it is as dark and as as great a, a definition of evil as you will find on the screen, while at other times they struggle with the presence of evil, while at other times everything turns out sunshiny. But not everybody's like that. Most of the time, it, it, life doesn't work that way. Stop being Pollyannish. Get your head out of the sand. And yet when we read one of those fairy tales, one of those stories, one of those pieces of fiction, we watch one of those movies we just love those happy endings. My son makes fun of me for loving the movie You Got Mail. It's a great movie. Listen, man, I'm a football player, a wrestler. I'm a hunter-gatherer who likes chick flicks. <laughs> Don't judge me. Get on my level. I love that movie. I can't help it. I can't help it. It's a great movie. Love, in the end, overcomes all the harshness, all the misunderstandings, all the misperceptions. Love comes out on top. And you want life to have a happy ending so badly that you can taste it, but you have the skeptics whispering in your ear that life is not like that. 
But then you come to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And you begin to see that the Gospel is the happy ending event that invades real life, my life and your life. And the resurrection allows you to enter into every happy ending because life is really like that. Why? Because your ending is going to be a happy ending because He's there. Not just at the end, but even after that. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's why you have to look at both questions. If you had the answer to the question, what does the resurrection mean? Well, you would know what it means. You would have that answer. You would know what it means and you would want it to be true like any thoughtful person would. But you're not really sure that's true. But then you get the answer to the first question, did it really happen? And that's when your life changes. That this is not some kind of a naked fact that you can just believe that it happened. But it's a different kind of a truth. It's a truth that gets all the way down inside of you. Like that coin that goes inside of a Coke machine. That as long as it stays up there on the kind of the surface of where you, that slot, you don't really get that Coke, do you? But you've got to listen for it to go all the way down into the center to, to it, for it to access the Coke inside, for it to trigger the mechanism. That's what this truth does. It gets all the way down on the inside of you. And you realize that it's not just true, but you realize what it means. And the greatness of what it means is bolstered by the fact that it really happened. And regardless of what happens to you in this life, you know that your ending is going to be a happy ending because at the cross when you see the culmination of the greatest evil, where human beings in their own pride, in their own hubris, in their own idolatry, in their own greed, are able to take the Creator and crucify Him. Not just disdain Him, not just discredit Him, but to crush Him. But you see the power of God in taking all of that evil and all of that badness and all of that iniquity and wickedness and transgression. And you see all of it, even death itself, being swallowed up in victory at the resurrection. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I hope a lot of good things. But here's what I do know. Is that when you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that in love, not because He was coerced, not because He got trapped, not because He lost a bet, but in love, voluntarily became like us, which means that God came into our form and was tempted like we were, except without sin. He lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't, and He died the death that we should have died in order for us to be able to find the greatness of the blessing of eternal life and forgiveness and His Spirit inside of us, helping us to be changed individuals, giving us a different perspective on life, helping us to understand what God's will is, empowering us to be able to live it even when the world seems to be crushing and dropping an anvil right on top of us, to have that kind of hope. And not just a hope that, hey, I hope one day He's going to be there and hope one day I get it. It's hope as an anticipation. Is an anticipation that one day we're going to wake up. And because He went through that, not a whiff of cancer, not a scent of racism, not a trace 
of death anywhere. No tears. No tears. Because the ultimate vanquishing of evil will have been accomplished. I get so sick of the news at times and hearing about all of the awful things that are happening in this world. And it would be pretty easy for our attitudes and the way that we think about life to be like the art critics and run downhill because that's the path of least resistance. It's just bad, 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 bad. But then we open up the Word of God and we press our mind into it. And we begin to see that the greatness of Jesus is not just His words and not just His miracles. But the greatness is the love that kept Him on that cross. In the pain, the shame, the humiliation, the derision that He was facing, it kept Him on that cross. The death that He died, three days later resurrected to new life. The first fruits, first fruits always a promise of more to come. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And maybe this morning you've been thinking, you know, I don't really know what to think about the resurrection, but, but I want to know more. We can answer those questions. We'd love to sit down and study with you. Or it may be that you've come to that point in your life where you're ready. I believe the resurrection. I want that hope. I want it to be real in my own life. We can help you with that too. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them. There may be some prayer requests that you have too that you want to, 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 to share with your church family so that in the name of Jesus we lift them up in prayer on your behalf for a period of time until an answer from God comes. That's part of it too. But whatever your need is, our shepherds are down here at the front. Come down and talk to them. The rest of us, let's stand and praise God together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a full.